Let's turn with you now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what uh, terrible words indeed to read, to read of this treachery, to read of one of Christ's own disciples who had spent these years with him and all of his sinless perfection and heard his gracious words and had seen the Father testify, had seen the testimony of both works and words and of heaven and had instead decided to follow Satan and to betray his master to his death. Lord, no greater sin has ever been enacted. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to well consider these things in reverence and awe and horror. And Lord, yet for our benefit, that we would understand the nature of our warfare and of the nature of Christ's Sacrifice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after much blessed time in Luke chapter 21, we come now to Luke chapter 22. And the time is drawing near to the end, a time in which the Lamb of God would be offered up for our sins. And darkness surely begins to descend upon the scene. It, this chapter, this section couldn't begin with any more darkness than this of Satan entering into one of the Lord's own disciples. This is the point in which Judas Iscariot decides to betray the Lord. But as I say, he was not alone in that decision, but Satan was doing his work behind the scenes. And speaking of behind the scenes, we have to remember the larger scene, the whole play, the whole thing that is going on throughout all of human history. It is the warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and we cannot forget that. That which was explained, that which was prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3, it carries on throughout all this point. In fact, it comes now to its climax, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Satan knows about the seed of the woman, knows that Mary has given birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, has sought indeed to put him to death by killing all the babies in the land surrounding where he was born, and has sought to oppose him from the very beginning, certainly, in the desert temptations, and now thinks that he has come to his moment in which he can put to death this seed of the woman. And surely he is about to strike his heel 
but he was going to have his head crushed, as we see. Well, let me say that what we see before us is not all that there is. Satan would love us to think that all that there is is the the visible things of this world. But that is not true at all. The more significant and more important things happen in the unseen world. Yes, they have their manifestations in this world. But we must remember the priority of the spiritual and unseen realm. Whether for good or for evil, the more significant things happen there. And we need constant reminders of these things. We really do. And if the whole purpose of this sermon is nothing more than to remind you that the really important, significant things are happening in the unseen spiritual realm, then you would be well served simply by knowing that this morning. Please do not buy into this secularist and the rationalist and this, the, the, uh, the anti-supernatural bent of our age. We as Christians should not fall into it, but because we are fed this night and day throughout the rest of the week, we need to be reminded that we are not alone in this world. And that every sin, every opposition to the Lord, every way of darkness has ultimately behind it, behind them, Satan himself. And we need not, we must not forget that. But beyond that, the greatest thing that we do as Christians is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and particularly to learn about the nature of his atoning sacrifice for us. We learn more about the person of Christ, and we learn, learn more about the work of Christ. There is really nothing more that can be done for you than to know those things, the person and work of Christ. And you know, even this section here tells us a little bit more, a little bit of something of the nature of Christ's atoning sacrifice as we see this reference to the Passover given. May the Lord help us to understand a little of these things. The title this morning is Satan Enters Judas. And there are the three points. The Passover draws near, the enemies confer, and Satan enters. The Passover draws near, the enemies confer, and Satan enters. So first, the Passover draws near. It says in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now what again are these feasts about? It's just a, a brief précis, a summary of the last sermon in Exodus. There are two interrelated feasts. right? All the rest of the, the major feasts of the Jewish calendar, it was just one feast. But this one, there are two of them, so interrelated that sometimes we conflate them, we mix them up as if they were the the same sort of thing. Well, they are very closely interrelated, but there are two interrelated feasts pointing to different aspects of the atonement. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointing to the removal of sin, and the Passover Lamb himself pointing to, to the propitiation for sin. Together, these things are taken as a group, the Passover. And all of this was going to be fulfilled in Christ. And not only in some general terms, but even the timing would be synchronized so that as these things were happening ceremonially, as the nation was carrying out their duties for the Passover, so Christ would be actually undergoing these things that were portrayed since the institution of the Passover. They were coming to their fulfillment right this very week, Passion Week, the week that we're now describing. 
And one of the aspects, in fact, one of you pointed this out to me, one of the aspects that we see in Exodus is that the lamb needed to be selected and set apart for slaughter. So in Exodus 12, 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. So a lamb was going to be designated, but not killed quite yet. Because, skipping down to verse 6, Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. So you're selecting him on the tenth and killing him on the fourteenth. Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. All these things with their very specific designations, all their specific uh, directions. Well, this delay between the designation of a particular lamb for sacrifice and the actual moment of its death, so it is with Christ. And this, this is the point where Christ is going to be officially designated, set apart, his fate sealed by the treachery of Judas Iscariot by the direction of Satan. It's going to be this one. But in all this human agency of Judas doing this and the enemies conferring and all this, and the demonic agency, as we'll see, that is behind it as Satan enters Judas to do this foul work, we should not forget that it was the Father who chose this particular lamb for sacrifice. He had chosen his very best, the lamb without blemish, to give, to cover his household. And you remember how if the household was small, you could probably band together. Several households could come together and just share one. But this, this particular household is not small. The father needed to provide for a very large household indeed. For all those who would ever come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those ones that we see in Revelation chapter 7, a number that no man could number of every tribe and every tongue under heaven. That is his household. And he had to provide the very best lamb for that household. And from before the foundation of the world, he had designated this lamb, his only begotten son, to die. He was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So then in all these things, as the Passover comes to fulfillment, even the precise timing of the Passover and this designation prior to the death of the Lamb, all these things by human agency and by satanic agency standing behind them is the sovereignty of God directing all of these things for his holy perfect ends. Now the Passover draws near. Secondly, the enemies confer. Verse 2, and the chief priest And the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, take a look at what's being described here in this verse. The very people, the very men who had been charged with the worship of God and with the instruction of God's people, so that they might, yes, be obedient to the law, but more than that, be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be pointed to the Messiah, that they might believe this very thing that from the beginning was the great work of God of the priesthood, the great work of the scribes, that the word of God might be made available to the people accurately in the errant word of God. They are plotting to murder the Son of God. 
That's the meaning of the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. This is their Lord. These are like the ones in the parable that we saw. We knew this was going to happen. That the, the ones who had leased the vineyard, the one who owed their Lord the fruit, the prophet, they had decided that rather than render to him his due, that they were going to, to murder him. And this was their dreadful, terrible work. And so they confer, they have their conference. We have our conferences like the one that I mentioned yesterday that I went to. Where we confer about the things of the Lord and how we might better serve him, how we might better know him. Well, they had their conferences as well. And this conference between the enemies of the Lord was how they might murder him. But there was one problem, one problem here, and that was that they feared the people. Isn't that interesting? They feared the people. Let us not forget that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Why? Even one man, even one righteous man might stand against a whole host because he knows he has a living God behind him. And so we, as God's people, as we walk in the way of holiness, can be bold, bold as lions. But the wicked are not like that. The wicked are simply bullies. The wicked have to slink around in darkness, and they, they fear because they know they don't have the Lord with them. And so in this case, they feared the people. I would say much the same in our own day. So to do this, they needed help. They needed someone from the inside to help them. Because having feared the people, there was no way they could just openly go and arrest Jesus. Because this might start a a riot, the thing that they feared. People might turn against them, so they needed to do it secretly. And the only way they could do that is if they had someone from the inside being able to tell, to betray the Lord Jesus and to, to explain all of his comings and goings. Well, what do you know? Judas was willing to do it. In verse 4, so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray them to them. So here we are. We have this conference of evil men. And we have Judas on his own volition slipping away. We have it described in in another of the Gospels, even from the very celebration of the Passover itself, aspects of it. He slipped away from that and went to go speak to them about how they might together murder the Lord Jesus. So, in verse 6, he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of of the multitude. The very thing that they desired was the thing that he could supply and the thing that he offered, which is he would know when they would be in some private place away from the crowds, out of the public eye, in which they could do exactly what they wanted. And he was only too glad to do it. Now why? Why? Why did why did this conference ever happen? What would have possessed Judas? To do this evil work. Well, that will be our next point. But let me say, as we consider even here, that there was a monetary incentive at work at the basic level. As in verse 5, it says, they were glad and agreed to give him money. That's explained a little bit more in Matthew 26, verse 14. You could almost get the, if you didn't know anything more, you could almost imagine that they sort of voluntarily came forward with the money. But in Matthew 26, verse 14, we see the fuller story. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, 
What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? It wasn't out of the goodness of their heart. It wasn't out of their own initiative that they offered money. But he came looking for money. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Well, friends, we're about to see again the larger spiritual explanation of the fact that Satan entered him. But let us not forget that there was this weakness that was at work in him, that he was greedy, that he was covetous, that he desired money. And this weakness had been at work with him for some time. It had been brewing. It had not been dealt with. He had not repented of this sin. He had not sought to remove it from his life like leaven from his household at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He had not searched diligently to get rid of these things, but had coddled the sin, encouraged the sin, and inculcated it. And so now this is the great moment of of weakness and the point of weakness of which Satan can use. You remember in Job, or sorry, John chapter 12, verse 4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You know what he's doing? He's, critica- he's criticizing the most beautiful act, perhaps, that anyone's ever done, which is this woman generously giving her whole life savings in the fragrant oil and anointing the Lord Jesus with it, seemingly wasteful to, to Judas. But the Lord Jesus himself, she has done a beautiful thing for me. It's a wonderful act of love and generosity. And he, in his wickedness, is criticizing this action. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. No, so it was not. If you knew that fact, and no doubt he did it secretly, and perhaps at that point no one knew that he was doing this. He was a good embezzler. He was very intelligent and clever. But if you knew that, then it's no surprise then. Because as he continually um, uh, manifested this weakness and continually allowed this to take hold of his heart, it only led to greater and greater sin. This, by the way, the fact that he would then succumb to giving up his Lord for a payment of money, that itself was in fulfillment of prophecy, even the exact amount. From Zechariah 11, we preached in Zechariah not too long ago, Zechariah 11:12. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It's ironic. It's not a princely sum at all. You compare it even to the 300 denarii, this money that was lavished on the Lord Jesus out of love. These wicked men had conferred and had struck a bargain and these clever scribes and Pharisees had, had gotten him down to the lowest possible price, a princely, not-so-princely sum of 30 pieces of silver. And that's all that the Lord was worth in the eyes of Judas Iscariot. This is the net 
sum of that conference? What was the outcome of it? Not a, not a book of theology and of biblical studies. The outcome of this particular conference of the enemies of the Lord was a princely sum of 30 pieces of silver and the plot to murder their maker. Well, the Passover had drawn near. The enemies had conferred, but we need to understand a third and final thing, that Satan had entered. Satan enters. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas named Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So behind all these things, yes, it was Judas. Yes, Judas had been coddling this sin rather than repenting of it, and it was a weakness that could be actuated at any point. You know, it's it's funny, just recently I had to go through this various uh, counterintelligence training, and one of the things that was continually being uh, uh, emphasized was if someone has, has money troubles or it leads to an extravagant lifestyle and so forth, then they are susceptible to being turned by the enemy because they have a point at which they can reach them. And therefore, they should be reported if you see these kind of things. Well, this was surely the human case, no doubt, for Judas. But we must not forget that there was something standing behind all of that, and it was surely Satan himself. Now, when else do we see Satan entering the picture? Well, for instance, in the Garden of Eden. And here, there was no pre-existing weakness with regard to the one that he spoke to. He is a very effective liar, and we must not forget that. He was able to come and uh, enter into the serpent and come and speak to Eve and bring about her downfall and Adam's downfall and with Adam the whole human race. Where else do we see Satan entering? Well, we read from Job, for instance, to bring about the destruction of this godly man, the greatest of the men of the East, through his insinuations and temptations. And now he enters, of course, in the temptations of the Lord, we see that. And now he enters Judas to do his work. Now, I want you to see that Judas was perfect, for two different reasons. We already mentioned that he had this weakness, this covetousness, of the, and Satan could use that to bring this about. But I also wanted you to understand that he was above reproach. Right? No one was going to suspect Judas of this thing. So much so, so much so, that in, in one of the other Gospels, as the scene is being described, and the Lord plainly says, doesn't just hint at, says, one of you is going to betray me. And they look around, And they start suspecting themselves or maybe someone else. But you know the one person they don't suspect? Even so much so that when when Satan, when when the Lord speaks to, to, uh, to Judas and says, the one who dips with me, that's the one, they still don't get it. Because he's so above reproach, they cannot imagine that Judas is going to be the one. Well, friends, let us not forget that some people are very good at putting on a show. Hypocrisy is all too real. And Judas was among the disciples of the Lord as one who was absolutely above reproach. No doubt this is the one, the reason why he held back. He was the most considered the most trustworthy of them, and his integrity was unquestioned, and so he said, you, you hold the money back. Well... If Satan 
could succeed in tempting an unfallen Eve and an unfallen Adam. He can succeed in tempting anyone. And so he did with Judas. Now, again, this is in fulfillment of prophecy. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Now, this kind of tells us two things, doesn't it? First of all, it reiterates the point that we've already said, that all of this is in accordance with prophecy. And if it is in accordance with prophecy, then we know it is also in accordance with the sovereignty of God. So even in this darkest section of the Gospels, we see the, this murderous plot happening. In fact, it gets worse from here. We have to understand this perfect sovereignty of God of this over all of these things. And also that we have to understand the reality of demonic influence such that Jesus could speak of this man as a devil. Was he literally a devil? No. But he, know, he knows that he would soon enough fall prey to the temptations and influence of Satan to such a complete extent that he was, in effect, a devil. And so when we, we ask, what does it mean then when, it, when Satan entered Judas? What does it mean that Satan enters into someone? John 13.2 describes it in a different way. It says, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. All it means is that Satan had succeeded in influencing him, having put something into the heart of Judas to do it, and that is described of Satan having entered him. We don't have to think, actually, that Judas was fully demon-possessed at this point. We don't have to think that. I don't think it's excluded. Maybe it's possible, but he wasn't behaving in the, the manner that we typically see in the Gospels of someone who is possessed by a demon. You see these people, don't you? They're like lunatics, and they're cutting themselves, and they're thrashing, and they're speaking in strange ways. Judas doesn't seem to have, have, have shown those kind of signs. But rather, the way it's described in John 13, the devil having already put it into his heart. That Satan came and whispered and suggested, and he listened. And Satan entered. Now, what, is, what are the applications of these things? When we consider this thing that Satan had entered into Judas. The first thing I want to say is that demonic influence is real. Now, demonic possession is real. All right. The, the final thing that was mentioned, we, we do not say that these things have utterly come to an end. We understand that at the time of the Lord, demonic activity was at an all-time high as all the forces of hell sought to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. But such things have happened since then. Such things happen even uh, now. Now, in societies where the Christian influence is stronger, these things are almost unheard of. But in places in this world where the land is entirely dark and where demons seemingly have their, their, their stronghold, these things do happen. And sadly, if the Lord does not intervene and this culture continues down its road to a return to paganism, I suspect that we'll be seeing these things more and more. But shy of actual demonic possession, we have to understand that influence and oppression that these things are very, very real. 
and indeed can happen to virtually anyone. Right? Now, it's absolutely less likely if you're on the King's Highway. Again, Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read that book, you ought to. It's a, a useful parable of the Christian life. And if you're in the King's Highway, walking in the way of righteousness in accordance with his directions, it's very unlikely that these things are going to happen. But if you're walking uh, because of some mistakes that you've made, some sin that has had its influence in your life, and you're therefore walking in a in a place of, of darkness, the reality of Satan or demons whispering things to you is, is all too likely. Let me explain what I mean by it can happen to anyone. Matthew 16.22 Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Do you understand that he at this point is using the exact same language for Peter? One of the three, one of the three, not only just one of the twelve disciples, but of the three of the inner circle, the ones who were most trusted, admitted to the greatest mysteries, who had seen him, would see him in the Mount of Transfiguration, the one who would come and see the empty tomb. This Peter he says, uses in the same terms as he dressed Satan himself, get behind me, Satan. Was he actually Satan? No. But at this point, he had received from Satan this suggestion, and he was acting as the mouthpiece of Satan, and the Lord is speaking as if to two people at the same time, speaking to Peter and speaking to Satan who is standing behind him, who had given this suggestion to him. Tempting the Lord to turn away from the path that the Father had given to him. If it could happen to Peter, it could happen to you. And soon enough, we're going to come later in this chapter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. The Lord will say, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And we have to understand that that was not utterly precluded the idea that Satan could ask to sift someone like this, the idea that Satan could influence one of his own disciples, it is far, far from being something impossible. Rather, we take it as a reason that we come to the Lord in prayer and ask that indeed we would be kept and our faith would be upheld. So a demonic influence is all too real, and we need to understand that. And to move up from that, secondly, we have to say, we have to remind ourselves of the reality of spiritual warfare. What does it say? What is the point in Ephesians chapter 6? Again, pointing us to that our situation, our problem is not with the people that we see, but of the spiritual influences behind it. Very true, isn't it? Very true, all of you. You know, some... The children and young people, you, you sometimes love fantasy-type things and, and reading fairy tales or whatnot. Well, this is really true. You, you have to understand that the unseen world, the spiritual world of angels and of demons, it's, it's really there. And it's, it's, we don't have to play act. This is our situation, whether we recognize it or not. And the best thing for us is day by day to recognize just what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? Why? 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It was, again, to use yet another military-type illustration. It was, a, it was a strange time warp to see the American forces that are fighting ISIS in Iraq, to see them wearing their, their uh, gas masks, their uh, chemical uh, equipment. And the reason is because ISIS actually has chemical warfare ability. They actually have these chemical weapons, and they, they have been gassing people, and so they have to carry along this stuff. I haven't seen that for a good long while now. Well, my point of the illustration is to say you don't do that. You don't bother with the training, and you don't carry this stuff around with you. It's heavy, awkward. You don't do that unless you have a threat that, that dictates it, that says you have to do it. All right? That's, that's what... Paul is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 6. If our warfare was against flesh and blood, then we wouldn't bother with the spiritual warfare aspect. But it is precisely because of the nature of our warfare, being spiritual, that we must have and we must employ spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. You have a tool to do the job. It says in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. To do the things, for instance, that Judas didn't do. Right? He didn't have the breastplate of righteousness on because he was embezzling money, making himself extremely susceptible to satanic influence. Or not even what was the problem with, with Peter. What was his problem? Pride. Spiritual pride, he was lifted up. He wasn't walking in terms of humility. Again, leaving himself susceptible to temptation to deny the Lord. The nature of the conflict is spiritual, and we must not forget it. Thirdly, do not be surprised when these kind of things happen. Don't be surprised. The fact that Judas betrayed Jesus is of great use to us practically. It really helps us because, first of all, it reminds us that it is possible to know Jesus and yet to reject him. You understand? He, he was with the Lord for these three years of his public ministry, and at the end he not just sort of kind of slinks away, but utterly rejects him to the point of contributing to his murder. And friends, the Lord Jesus was not reproaching himself for not witnessing better. If only I'd witnessed better to Judas. He was not reproaching himself for not living better. Oh, if I'd just been a better example, if I'd shown more fruit of the Spirit to Judas, maybe he wouldn't have done this. He was not reproaching himself at all. Everything that could have possibly have been done in its utter perfection had been, and yet this man walks away in rejection of the Lord. Everyone stands, you see, before the living God for the choices they make. And yes, we understand that God is fully sovereign. But we understand that we are free moral agents held accountable for our free choices. And that was Judas's situation. We should not be surprised. And even those who know the Lord, sadly and strangely and contrary to every expectation, walk away. The sad reality of apostasy. And neither should we be surprised when there are traitors from within our own camp. 
Matthew Henry says, no, it is hard to say whether more mischief is done to Christ's kingdom by the power and policy of its open enemies or by the treachery and self-seeking of its pretended friends. Nay, without the latter, its enemies could not gain their point as they do. How about that? Say it in plain language. Who knows whether more, more difficulty is caused, more trouble is caused by the, uh, the vowed enemies of the, the Dawkins of the world or of its professed friends who claim to be Christians, claim to be evangelicals, and yet are selling us down the river. Now, the, the currency for which they are betraying us is not 30 pieces of silver, although sometimes monetary incentive is part of the picture. Rather, it is to have a seat at the, at the table of power. Rather, it is to have the approval, if only for a moment, before the, the world once again changes the goal line to something else. But as long as they can be the one evangelical or orthodox Christian who says, yes, I agree with you, world, this thing, I, I don't like that about Christians either. As long as they can have that applause for a moment, they're willing to absolutely betray their brothers and sisters, knowing that they are, in effect, uh, throwing them to the lions. They're, they're willing to do it. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Matthew ten sixteen, as I was reminded yesterday of, Matthew ten sixteen says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You know, it's not beware of councils themselves, but beware of men who will deliver you up to them. And the place this is going to happen is in their synagogues. You understand? These are those who profess to follow God, to believe in God. Why is that? Why? Well, if our presence among the ignorant, unsaved people is irritating to them, and it is, we mentioned that, our presence among false believers is intolerable. Let me say that again. If our presence among the ignorant of the world is irritating to them, our presence among false believers is absolutely intolerable. And they will do what it takes to diminish and to destroy us. And ultimately, I think, among all the other explanations you could say about Judas, we know he was a hypocrite. We know he didn't really believe because if he did... He certainly wouldn't have committed suicide, and, or particularly beyond that. Some, I'm, maybe it's possible that some believers in a moment of weakness commit suicide. But what we're told is that he was a son of perdition, and he's certainly not saved. He was a hypocrite. And the presence of a holy God, the Son of God among him, it was intolerable. And so he got rid of him. Friends, we should not be surprised when these things happen. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're so taken aback, we're kind of thrown for a loop. We said, oh, if, if it was some avowed opponent of Christianity, I could deal with it. Oh, but who would have guessed that somebody who used to be have a reputation for being faithful and a leader in the evangelical community would betray us in such a way? Betray me personally or you personally? No, don't be surprised. No, friends, this is the way it's been for a long time. Jesus wasn't thrown for a loop. He knew it was going to happen. 
And though we do not have his prescience, we do not have his perfect understanding in advance of all things that are going to happen, let us not be surprised, but rather have our faith in God. And let us stick to the one who sticks closer to us than a brother, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And stand in the evil day. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what can we say to all these things except that we must be humbled to the dust? These are brothers and sisters. These are fellow believers in some cases or just our fellow human beings and others. Who knows what we are capable of? Lord, we are so weak. We are so sinful. And we must say, let us take heed lest we ourselves fall. Lord God in heaven, how we pray that we would truly purge out the leaven from among us. How we pray that we would not coddle sin and feed it, but rather to starve it and to, to, to rid ourselves of it. Lord, knowing that sometimes these little things turn to bigger things. How we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would embrace more and more the light. And that day by day we would put on the whole armor of God, knowing that we need to. There really is a war going on. And it is a spiritual warfare. Lord God in heaven, help us. Even as we recognize that the forces of darkness are very much against us, we may walk around in ignorance, being naive of these things, but Lord, we know that they are all too true. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to stand, and that you would pray for us, you would intercede for us, that Satan might not sift us as wheat. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.